We'll move into verse 2 next Lord's Day. I am intentionally spending a little bit more time on these verses because really these verses set the stage for the rest of the book. Because if we don't fully understand what Paul is calling for here, then all the commands that are given that are very practical that he's going to give in the next few chapters, uh, you will not have the foundation that you need necessarily for that. So, and this, of course, being an application, uh, really a, a complete uh, fulfillment of all that he's been driving home after talking for 11 chapters on very important doctrine regarding our salvation. And so today we again find ourselves in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, talking about total devotion to Christ, total devotion to Christ. Listen to what Paul writes. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The last two words of verse 2 really summarize your purpose for existence. And that purpose is worship. You exist to worship. God created you to worship him. And in fact, in the verse that I read in the first verse, the two verses in the New King James say reasonable service, uh, but the Greek words lagakain latreon actually could be translated more accurately spiritual service of worship. Spiritual service of worship. In fact, the New American Standard and the Legacy translate it this way. The ESV translates these two words, spiritual worship. So the point is, is that the primary point that Paul is driving home here in this text is, is that our whole life should be summarized with worship. All that God has done for us, all that he has brought to us in salvation, this great salvation as Hebrews 2 talks about, that God has mercifully granted to us is for the purpose of you being able to worship God. He makes you a qualified worshiper, a worshiper that can come into his presence with no threat of death or judgment, but one that can truly give him honor and not only honor, but to praise all of his character, his justice, his holiness, his mercy, and his grace. So Paul is driving home in these first two verses that our worship should not be confined to the two hours on Sunday morning, but that in fact it should be a way of life. Worship should permeate our lives. It should be really the outflow of a redeemed life. You even find out in Ephesians chapter 5 when it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, which by the way is another way of saying being controlled by the Holy Spirit, that one of the ways that that is shown is by your praise of God and your worship through song. Paul the Apostle understood what it was to be a Christian worshiper of God. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, he defines the believer this way. And I think it's probably one of the best definitions in all of the Bible regarding what a believer is. Philippians 3, 3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. The point I would want to bring to your attention this morning is, is that we are those that worship God in the spirit. 
We worship God in the Spirit. Jesus also indicated in the Gospels the Father's desire for those to worship him. You remember the account in John 4, 19, where the woman came to Jesus, and it says there that she perceived that he was a prophet, which would have been clear by his uh, knowledge of her. But in John 4, 19, it says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. This is the woman speaking here. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. In her mind, worship was a localized event, a geographical place, a temple where you met. And that's the way it was in those days, in fact. The temple was the place where the, the scripture was read. The temple was the place where the sacrifices occurred. It was where the Holy of Holies was. It was the place where the Jews understood that they met God. But Jesus responds in John 4.21 and says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming and ne that neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, talking about the, the Samaritan woman. But then he says, We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God desires worship. God is seeking true worshipers. In fact, in that same text, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That meant that worship is not confined to a building. It's not confined to a structure, or it's not confined to a particular sacrificial system, as was coming very rapidly when Jesus would die on the cross and satisfy the demands of a holy God. The point I would bring to your attention is, is it has always been, from eternity past, the desire of God to have true worshipers. People who worship him not externally, but internally. People who worship him not with formulas and rituals, but people who worship at a, out of a grateful heart that rejoices in the mercies and the grace of God. Exodus chapter 20, if you'll remember, whenever Moses was given the Ten Commandments, we find right there at the very beginning the priority of worship. The first few commands clearly indicate that it was God's intent that all of us understand properly the place of God in our lives. In fact, it even says in Exodus 20 verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments." But that's not the end of it. He goes on with more commands. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Then the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So before we get to those commandments that deal with you and I and our relations, the first four commandments deal with our own understanding of who God is and our priority to worship him and him alone. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10, 
One of my favorite portions of Scripture, whenever God reminds them of what he has done in taking them out of Egypt into the land of promise, it says in Deuteronomy 6.10, So it shall be that when the Lord your God brings you out into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities, which you did not build, houses full of good things, which you did not fill, hewn out wells, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then he says this, then be aware, lest you forget the Lord. That you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. The word serve, by the way, is that same Greek word, that we find in Romans chapter 12. The word serve is a word that is used throughout the Old Testament Septuagint in the Greek form to refer to, and it is a synonym, synonym of worship. It is worship. In Matthew 8, or rather Matthew 4, 8 through 10, we have the temptation of Christ. In that text, we find again the priority of worship, Right? The devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain, it says, and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. If you fall down and worship me, the devil says, I will give you all of these things. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The word worship there proskuneo means to bow down before, to bow down before. And then the other word, again, is our word in Romans chapter 12, the word serve, latreo is the root word of it. It means to worship. The first word really has to do with the attitude, that is you are to proskuneo, you are to bow down, you are to have a, an attitude of humility and of fear in the presence of God. But that second word has to do with really the work of worship, the work of worship, the word serve. Now, most of us probably don't think of worship as a service, uh, that you're doing something and fulfilling something and getting an obligation done, and therefore you are serving, and therefore you are worshiping. Too much worship today has been emotionalized. It's all about the emotion and all about how you feel. But what I hope to help you to see as we go through Romans 12, 1 and 2 is that worship is much, much more than that. It's much deeper than that. In fact, the emotion that we would describe in worship should be the byproduct of worship that is intellectual, listen to this, academic, understanding who God is, understanding theology proper, if you will, and what the mercies of God are, as we talked about last week. And then it responds in proper service to God. And the emotions can come along with it. In fact, anything you do in the name of God, and it can be, even as the Puritans rightly taught, even the most mundane thing of life that you do can be an act of worship to God. It doesn't matter what you do. As long as you're doing it for the honor and the glory of God, that service can become an act of worship for God. Now think about that the next time you're going through that difficult task at home that you really don't care to do. Or perhaps maybe your car is broke down and you're having to work on that or you're having a difficult time at work. Whatever it might be, you can serve God where you are and you can actually have that be a means of worship. 
This is something we've lost, I believe. We need to understand that whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink, we do all for the glory of God. And I think we need to understand that whatever job you're in, even if it is not related to a church or a ministry, it can be all for the glory of God. If you make a certain product, you do your very, very best for the glory of God. If you farm, you do your very best for the glory of God. If you're an administrator or a secretary or a, a laborer or a contractor, whatever it is, you do your very best for the glory of God. And God gets the glory through all of this, and you serve him through that. And when you come to church and you are servicing and you're working in the church, you do it all for the glory of God. I believe that Christians should be known to be the ones that are always on time at work, never late, that they do the best job possible, and the only thing they can bring up an accusation against you as a believer is, man, that guy is always here. He's never a person that's not dependable. He always does a good job. I have nothing wrong to say about him. He makes me guilty. That would be the best thing, right? Sadly, it's not always the case. But as we have come to our text, really what Paul is driving home is how this true worship is fleshed out. So we saw, or we, we, we began to see last week, the desired presentation in the words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, or I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, I'm not going to go back through all of that again. You can read that for yourself or listen to that again in the sermon last week. But my point is just to highlight a couple of things as we move forward. He is begging them, exhorting them, admonishing them, if you will, encouraging them. And even some say this could be understood as a command because of the force of the apostle Paul behind it. He's begging them, therefore, based upon the mercies of God. Now, this is so essential because the motivation here is not to get saved. The motivation is because you are saved. In other words, based on God having mercy in your life and giving you salvation that you did not deserve, therefore, give yourself a living sacrifice. That's what's behind this. And by the way, if you don't truly understand what it means to be converted and to know what it is to have your sins forgiven and to experience the true, wonderful grace and mercy of God, then perhaps maybe you need to back up a little bit. Let's start back in Romans 1 and go through the rest of the book again and define what it means to be a Christian. We're not talking about just being a good person or being a helpful person or being a person who is morally upright. We're talking about someone who is responding to the mercies of God in their life by absolute, total, unreserved devotion to God. It's like Jesus gave his all. What does he expect of us? All. Absolutely all. He's talking to the brothers here. Clearly an indicative that he is talking about the true Christians. He calls them saints, the called ones in Romans 1. In fact, in this text, as one commentator said, this word you're used to beg these brethren is a technical term that defines the earnest appeal based on the gospel itself. These are already believers who have been converted and saved, perhaps even under the, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But he's calling on them after he's given them great detail in doctrine on soteriology or the doctrine of salvation to respond in a positive way in total devotion and worship to God. That's why the word therefore is there. Because it takes you back. Some say, well, it only refers to chapter 11. Oh, no, it goes much further than that. 
It goes all the way back to chapter 1 and takes you through the entire discourse of the Apostle Paul regarding what it means to be saved. But notice the little word by there or through. It may be translated in your um, translation of the Bible. It's the Greek word dia, D-I-A. That preposition can be translated properly through or by or because of or on account of. And if you look at it from the standpoint of because of, then the idea is is that you are responding, literally responding to the mercies of God in a positive way in devotion to Christ. But if you take the same Greek preposition and you translate it through by means of, that means that you are able to actually serve God faithfully, be totally devoted to him through the mercies of God. And by the way, both are true. Both are true. You can't serve God effectively or properly or faithfully or rightly unless you have been saved, right? You can't. And you will not respond appropriately if you do not fully understand just how much God has done for you in saving you. Some of the most uh, excited people you'll ever meet when it comes to serving Christ are the newly converted people. When they come to Christ, everything is so fresh in their mind and in their memory of how God has forgiven them of their sin, and they're just on fire for God. Nobody can get in their way. Nobody can stop them. They're going to talk about Christ, talk about God to everybody. I know that whenever God saved me in his mercy, that's the way I was. And it definitely upset my home life for some time with my parents until the Lord was gracious to save both of them. But I'll be honest with you, there is something good about a new life that has remembrance of what God has done. You don't have to go back and say, hey, listen, do you remember back when you used to be like this? And now God has taken you and made you a believer. And sometimes we as Christians who have been believers for some time, we forget. We forget just how far God has taken us and how wonderful this mercy and grace is. The pit, the mire, the mud, the dirt, the sin that he pulled us up out of and saved us and forgave us of. So I think you could even understand this uh, little preposition. I'm not sure exactly what the way Paul intended it initially, but it could be understood as through or because of or by. So really it is understood that we are responding to the mercies of God and we are also because of the mercies of God being able to serve him and to worship him faithfully and to present ourselves a living sacrifice to God. Let's go back to the text now. We'll pick it up where we left off last Lord's Day. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, this gets very practical, doesn't it? I mean, we're, we're bringing it home now. Uh, we're not talking in something uh, philosophical. We're not talking in something that's not we, so, something we couldn't understand. He says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This word translated uh, present In the Septuagint, again, the Old Testament Greek uh, translation, peristomy is the Greek word. It's a technical term for the priest offering up sacrifices. This is a religious term in the Old Testament. In other words, this is something that Paul is bringing to mind, the readers and the ones that listen to the letter to Rome being read, that they are to do what the priest used to do in presenting a sacrifice. However, this time it's not An animal, guess what it is? It's you. It's your body. It's your flesh. 
He's calling on you to present yourself. The word periistomy means to be brought alongside of or to stand beside. It's a very, very intimate term. And you have that real clear reminder of the priest identifying with the sacrifice, laying his hands on the sacrifice and thereby identifying with the sacrifice as it was sacrificed on behalf of the people of Israel. So whenever you think about you presenting yourself to God, it is a very close, intimate thing that you are giving your whole, your whole self to God. This is used all throughout scripture, this word present. And I'll give you the flavor of it just looking at Texts like Romans 6.13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God, being alive from the dead. In Romans 6.16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? In the same chapter, in verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, but just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness. And the members he's talking about, there's the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes, your tongue, all of those things that literally, as we'll see in a few moments, lead us into sin. And this word is important to understand that it means more than just a donation, right? The word conveys, as one author said, a complete resignation and readiness in which you do not even hesitate to give yourself to God. It's an aorist tense verb and could be understood as a one-time event, but I believe that often all of us understand this. Aorist can be understood more than that. It could be something that we're always having to do, right? I think it was Chuck Swindoll many years ago said the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off of the altar. And we have to keep putting ourselves back up there over and over and over again. You know, you may do this today. You may think about this today and the Spirit of God may convict you to do this and to respond to this appropriately. But tomorrow morning, the next day, and the next day, when the flesh wants to rise up and people agitate you and cause you all kinds of inner turmoil that arises from your sinful nature, you may be finding yourself having to present yourself over and over and over again. Paul really, in his mind, I believe, is asking us to understand this to be done once. Do it. Be done with it. Be done with this, this affiliation with and this desire of and participation in the flesh. And notice in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, again, he says, you are to present your what? Your bodies. Now, by the way, you can go back and you can study this in the Greek text, and I can tell you what this word bodies mean. It means your body. That's what it means. That physical flesh that you and I walk around in all day long. The one that you showed up in today with. That body. It's literally that practical. He's telling us to present our bodies to God. Now, we know that in salvation, you are made a new man in Christ, right? That new man has to do with that immaterial part of you, that soul, spirit part of you. You have been recreated. You are a new creation in Christ. But there still remains an unredeemed part of you. And that unredeemed part of you happens to be your body. It happens to be your body. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, just give it a few years. You'll find out just how unredeemed it is. And in fact, if you have not... Uh, seeing what your body can do in leading you into sin and causing you to stumble, 
We went through the book of James just a few months back, right? And we talked about on a number of occasions that little member. And that little member is the tongue, part of that body that gets us into all kinds of trouble and causes all types of problems. It even says this in James 3, 5. Even so, the tongue, that part of your body, is a little member and it boasts great things. See how great a forest that little fire kindles. The tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members of the bodies, the point, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is even set on fire from hell. In Romans 3, 13, you see how Paul identifies the location of the sin problem by saying this in Romans 3, 13, their throat is an open tomb with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of snakes is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness and their feet are swift to shed blood. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul said this about his own person. He said, I discipline my body to bring it into subjection, lest I, when I have preached to others, I myself become disqualified. And what he meant by that is I'm going to make sure I keep my physical body under control so that it does not lead me into sin, and therefore my ministry is disqualified. Very important, is it not? The lost person doesn't have this ability. The lost person doesn't have the ability to control the flesh. Oh, he may have some restraints. It may be his work or his parental uprising or whatever, upbringing rather, or it may be some force of the police or whatever it might be that kind of constrains the, the evil in the person who was lost. But I grant you, he does not have the ability to control the body in such a way that you can have true worship. The unregenerate person cannot give God his body and his mind and his will because he hasn't given himself to God. It starts with a new creation. You have to be willing to confess your sins and repent of those sins and let the, the work of the Holy Spirit literally regenerate you. As it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man or the lost man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him he cannot even understand them because they're spiritually appraised or discerned. The lost person doesn't have the ability to do this. And if you are just in religion, and if you're trying to use religion to make yourself right with God, where you have external moral codes you live by or commandments you live by, that's not what Paul's calling for here. He's not, he's not calling for external renovation. He's calling for that which is already present internal, what is already there in the new man in Christ, the new creation, to be manifest in the actual body, the physical body in which you and I are in. The Bible talks about the priority of the soul over the body. In fact, as Jesus said, for what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? So obviously the immaterial part of man is the most precious part, no doubt. This body that you and I live in is one day going to die. It's going to decay. It's going to be eventually resurrected and transformed and changed. Now one author said Paul has made it very clear that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8.8. 8. No matter what his personal feelings might be, the unredeemed person cannot worship God, cannot make an acceptable offering to God, cannot please God in any way with an offering. That's what Paul is calling for here. He even said it in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You remember this passage. 
If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor and I, or I deliver my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. So he's not just talking about an external physical renovation here. He's not talking about let's just get things under control. That's not what he's meaning here. Based on the mercies of God, based upon the salvation that you have by God in your life and the new creation that has occurred, we are to present our bodies also to God. In other words, all of ourselves to God, everything to God. The bodies is where the battle is. That's where the battle is. Paul talked about this in Romans 7, 5. He says, for while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit unto death. You know, by the way, whenever you die, the problem you have with sin will go away. Whenever you finally pass away from this place, that sin issue that you reside with right now all the time that fights you and you struggle with all the time will go away. Your soul, your spirit will immediately be in the presence of God. And then in the future, whenever the Lord returns, he will take that dead body that has been buried or cremated and he will resurrect that body into a new body, a glorified body that is not affected by sin at all. But until that time, until that comes, you and I live here and we live right here in the midst of this body that causes us all kinds of trouble. And Paul is calling on us to understand that. In that time, there was a philosophy or a false teaching that was circulating in the Greek communities. It was a dualistic uh, ideology that taught that the body was evil and the spirit was good, or the immaterial part of man was good, but anything that the body did was evil. And so they basically concluded that whatever the body does doesn't matter. I mean, if it does evil, then so be it. It's going to die anyway. And so they created this dualism that whatever you do in your spirit or your mind, if you will, is good in the sight of God. But whatever the body does, it doesn't matter. Hence, you had the problem with such immorality in that culture because they had created a teaching that allowed for that very thing by saying the spirit is good and the body is evil. Paul confronted that on a number of occasions, like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 13, he says, Foods for the stomach and stomach for the foods, but God will destroy both of them. That was an idea, that was an expression that was going around those days that, look, whatever you put into the body is whatever you put into the body. Who cares? Whatever the body does, it doesn't matter. The body does evil, it does evil. That's all it can do. It's going to die one day. It's going to rot. It's going to go. It's depraved. But then he reminds them in that very text, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And for God uh, both raised up the Lord and will also raise up this body. And he says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We don't think like that too often, do we? Sometimes we find ourselves kind of wrapped up in that dualistic Greek philosophy of those days. But the Bible's telling us that you and I should give ourselves wholly to God, not only our spirit, soul, mind, and strength, but even our bodies. That's why Paul prayed, and this is going to be our benediction today, in fact. Paul prayed these very words. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and you can finish it for me, and body be preserved, complete, without blame at his coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, don't let sin reign in your what? Your bodies. 
Listen, we cannot, as much as we would desire to, we cannot prevent the remnants of sin in our body. They're there. And they're going to be there until you finally die or the Lord comes back. We can't stop that. However, because we have the power of the Holy Spirit and, I would add, the power of the Word of God and the assembly of God's people and the Lord's Supper, we have resident here and among us the power to deal with the body. Now, what does he tell us to do here? In this text, he says you are to present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice. Now, notice he's not saying a dead sacrifice. He's not saying for us to all run out and die for Christ, although some of you may. The point is behind this is he wants you now, he wants all of you now, and he wants you alive now. He wants you to be a living, living sacrifice. That's the kind of condition he desires you to come to him in. It isn't a, like I said earlier, it's not a donation. It's not a partial commitment. It's not something that you can give for a little while. I mean, sacrifices weren't something that came and left. I mean, they were permanent. That's what's behind the idea of Paul's words here. You are to give yourself a living sacrifice. These words are used in the Old Testament of the sacrifice of animals. And, of course, he's not talking about you and I physically being put upon an altar. He's talking about your attitude and your heart and your determination to make sure that all of you, even your body, are presented as a living sacrifice to God. And what are the conditions of that? Here's what he tells us. Look at the text. He doesn't just say, give it to me. He says, give it to me holy and acceptable. Holy and acceptable. The word holy is an important word. We see it all throughout scriptures, the Greek word hagias. And although it primarily has the idea of purity, no doubt, the purity of God and the holiness of God and the absolute righteousness of God, but the word hagias also meant separate or set apart. In fact, whenever you looked at the Old Testament and you read that the furniture of the temple was holy or certain parts of the temple were holy, it didn't mean that they were intrinsically righteous. What it meant was is that they are set apart to God. And that's what's really behind Paul's words here. He's driving home that he wants you to be a living sacrifice, totally devoted to and set apart to God. That's the holiness. Now, it doesn't deny that he's asking for purity. Surely he is. If you're a living sacrifice and you're giving your body to God, which is the problem that we all have with sin then he is calling for practical purity and practical holiness and practical discipline and obedience to the word of God. Yes. But he's also calling for you to set yourself apart to God. And there's so much out there today that wants all of our attention, right? It wants all of our devotion. It wants all of us. And we need to set ourselves apart to God. And the way that starts is the beginning of the Christian life first, right? You start by setting yourself apart to God. We uh, began our sermon last Lord's Day talking about this very topic in Luke 14, 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's total devotion. That's setting yourself apart to Christ. But also it's not only something you start with as a Christian, but you have to live this way. Set apart to God. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does he mean by that? What he means is every waking moment, all of my conscious existence is for who? 
Christ. That is set apart to Christ. Now, before I go any further, I want to make sure you understand something that I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all of us are to hide away somewhere and read the scripture the rest of our life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about all of us getting into a dark cave and writing manuscripts. That's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is wherever God has placed you, whatever that that area of service or whatever that role is that God has given to you as a person on this planet, you are to set all of yourself over to him, set apart to him, so that all is in honor to him. Even a mother who is home all day raising her children and teaching them, she can honor the Lord by being set apart to Christ in all that she does for the Lord. The father and the husband that goes away and works all week and then comes home can do the same at his job. The minister who comes to church and works to faithfully give the people the word of God and, and of course, help counsel can also do that very same thing. But he's not the only one. Any single person who's a believer can be set apart to God in all that they do. And so it is a living of that. It's not only a start, but it's a living of it. For to me, Paul says... To live is Christ. He says, if I'm alive, it's all about Jesus. If I'm alive, it's all about Jesus. And he says, if I die, no problem. That's a gain. That's a gain. He even said this in Philippians 2.17, yes. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He gave his all in service to the people at the church at Philippi. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, Paul said, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus my Lord, Paul says, I die daily. I die daily. Galatians 2.20, you know this, I'm sure. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, that is in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 5.24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh, that part of the body that causes us to sin with its passions and desires. In Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's what he's saying. Total devotion to Christ, unreserved. Devotion to Christ, setting yourself, your life, your service, your work over to the Lord. And not only does it work in life and living and in the start of the Christian life, but also in service of the Christian life. We should expect that, right? I mean, obviously so. 2 Corinthians 4 says that Paul, the apostle, in his service for Christ, in doing what God had called him to do, was carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also might be manifest in his body. For we who live are always delivered to death, for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. I mean, I could read so many other verses that talk about Paul's absolute total devotion to Christ and how he understood what he's telling us to do right here in Romans 12, 1. He gave himself as a living sacrifice to his Lord... And he gave his whole body, soul, mind, and strength to do so. Now, much of public opinion today is absolutely contrary to everything I just said. 
It is telling you that much of what you learn in your Christian life, or even from some preachers and some prominent evangelists that are on the airways today, they are telling you that it's all about you. It's all about what you can get, what you deserve, what you should have. But that's not what Paul's calling for. He's calling for the absolute opposite. He's calling for you to set everything about yourself aside and to follow Christ with total devotion. Total devotion. He wants 100% of your time. He wants 100% of your money. He wants 100% of your marriage. He wants 100% of your children. He wants 100% of your vacation and your study or your leisure time, rather. He wants 100% of your passion and your affection and your love. He wants 100% of your commitment to all things in your life. All things in your life. Sacrifices, as I said, are not partial. They're not partial. They're not half-hearted. They come with full commitments. You know, sadly today, even in most evangelical churches, that same percentage remains pretty much true that 80% of the people don't do 20% of the work. And so we've got a lot of people who just don't serve, don't do, don't act, don't evangelize, don't share, don't talk, don't commit, don't follow, don't invite. All the list goes on and on. I've always wondered what it would be like if we had, let's just take it, for instance, let's just take 60%. Give me 60% of the believers, like in the book of Acts, that turned the world upside down for Christ. I mean, they were at the point where they were selling what they had and giving it to those who were in need. They were so totally devoted to Christ that what they had here on this earth did not matter to them anymore. And they were getting rid of it just to serve the body of Christ. And they were willing to go out and be persecuted for the name of Christ. And they were evangelizing wherever they went. And the world was turned upside down for Christ. Perhaps the reason why we're not seeing that today is because we're not practicing what it says in Romans 12.1. Maybe we're not giving ourselves wholly over to Christ as this text tells us to do. Maybe we do serve with half-hearted commitments instead of wholehearted commitments and full commitments. The church and its ministry and its mission has suffered immensely because of that. Immensely because of that. You know, you read about great stories of great men and women in the history of the church who have done such great things for God, and usually there's a theme that runs through all of them. They're absolutely, totally devoted to Christ, unreservedly, and give their all to Him. That's usually the way it goes, right? You remember David Livingston, the renowned and noble missionary of Africa? He wrote in his journal, he said this, People talk of sacrifice that I have made spending much time in my life in Africa. He said this, can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt that I owe to God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of health, helpful activity and consciousness of doing good and peace of mind and bright hope of the glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word, he says, such a view or such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege Anxiety and sickness and suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of a common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared to the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in us. I never made a sacrifice, he says, 
Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he has made who left the Father's throne on high to give himself for us. Wow. There you have it. A man who literally gave his life in service for Christ says that wasn't a sacrifice. I didn't even come close to paying back what Christ has done for me. And some of us here today, I'm sure, and even many who are listening online today, believe that they have given their all to Christ. But in fact, if you evaluate your hearts and your minds, you know you haven't done it all. You haven't given it all. You've reserved certain time for your own self all the time, perhaps. You haven't devoted yourself to ministry like you should. You haven't shared the word of God the way you should with others around you. Maybe you haven't devoted yourself to reading and the study of the scripture the way you should or prayer. I'm not here to make you guilty because I'm one of those that is guilty. All of us fall into that. That's why Paul calls us to this. He reminds us of this. That's why he starts off and says, I beg you, therefore, brethren, through the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And the word acceptable, by the way, is the word that means pleasing to God. It was used again of that which is pleasing to God in worship. Reminds me of what it says in Malachi when the Lord rebuked the Israelites for their sacrifice of animals that were not worthy of being sacrificed. He said this, listen to what the prophet says as recording what the Lord said to Israel. He said this, when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? In other words, when you brought the animals for sacrifice, they were to be the best of the flock. Not the worst of the flock or the disabled of the flock. They were to be the best. When you present the blind for a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer that to your governor, God says? Would you give that to your governor? Would you give that to someone that you esteem? Would that be pleasing? Of course not. That's his point. That is a second-rate offering. That's not what God expected. And the reason why they were doing that is they feared men more than they feared God. That was what was behind all of that. God expects all of us to give our 100% wholly and completely and it to be fully pleasing to God. Holy, consecrated, and acceptable to God. All of it. Without exception. I think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent. Whether I'm there with you as a church or whether I'm not with you, he says... We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him, well-pleasing to God. For he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the, what's the word, body. There it is again. That same body you and I are to present to the Lord 100%, totally devoted. Psalm nineteen fourteen. let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing or acceptable in your sight O lord philippians 4 18 indeed i have i have all and abound i am full having received all the things sent to you sent from you a sweet smelling aroma acceptable or pleasing sacrifice well pleasing to god even um, paul told timothy in chapter 2 verse 1 therefore i exert i exhort first of all that all supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men 
for kings and for all those in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence, for this is good and well-pleasing in the sight of God. 1 Timothy 5, 4, And if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Have you thought about that as an act of worship? I mean, just taking care of parents and widows, taking care of children? 1 Peter 2, 5, You also as living stones being built up on the spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, pleasing to God. And so Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1, that we are to give our bodies as a living sacrifice in response to the tremendous blessing of salvation because it is our spiritual service of worship. A couple of closing thoughts, though, just to help you with this. That word translated here in my text, reasonable service, and it is service, a spiritual service in the new ASB and NASB and the legacy, that is the Greek word lagakos. You hear the word lagos in that? This word lagakos is the word we get logic from. That's why the New King James translated it reasonable. In other words, this is another way of saying that is when you respond this way to the mercies of God, that is logical. It makes sense. Why shouldn't we give our all to God? He gave his all for us. It is a logical worship. It is a reasonable response. It is an expected response for us to give our all to him. True worship, listen to this, true worship does not necessarily consist of elaborate, impressive prayers or intricate liturgy or stained glass windows or lit candles or flowing robes or incense or Bible studies. What it does include is logical, spiritual worship and service to God. That's, you can take all of that other stuff, and I'm not saying any of it's necessarily bad, but all the liturgy in the world does not produce true spiritual worship. doesn't matter what you have in your church or how your church is built and what the structure looks like. If your heart is not responding to God's mercy by presenting yourself a living sacrifice, you have missed, listen to this, the logical worship that should come. One other thought I would add to that is that our worship is not mindless. It is not mindless. I've watched some silly stuff recently online of some churches that have done some strange things. There was one particular service that was being pushed around this week, clearly charismatic because they were dancing. They weren't like Baptist. And they were really getting excited. Well, they got so excited, they believed that there was a demon in the pulpit and the pastor tore the pulpit apart. I mean, seriously, folks, really? I don't have any ideas with this. This isn't happening. We're not tearing this down at all. But there's a lot of stuff out there that's totally mindless. It has no thought in it. And sometimes I know that there's a temptation on our part, especially, to get a little bit more academic. And we can become so academic that we become cold and we miss the other part of worship. The Bible tells us that God desires that we worship him in spirit and in truth. 
that does not mean spirit in the sense of a football rally. It means spirit in the sense, number one, it's not attached to temples. It's not attached to structure. It's not attached to physical things. But spirit also means it's internal and part of the heart. It's part of the heart. But he desires not only that, but he desires truth. He desires truth. In other words, we worship him not just in spirit, but we worship him according to truth and in the context of truth. And there's a lot today who believe that emotion is what makes up worship. And listen, I'm not against emotion. But too often, emotion is void of truth. And you need the truth. And some of us here who have the truth need to understand what emotion can be in worship. And then others who have so much emotion need to understand what truth is and get a healthy balance for them all. When God gave us revelation to know how to worship, he gave us a book. Did he not? He didn't give us a feeling. He didn't give us goosebumps. He gave us words, phrases, nouns, adjectives, verbs to study, to reason, to look at, to understand. But that is not where it should end. It should affect our heart and our emotion and our drive and our passion for Christ. And I would pray that that would be the case for all of us today. I'd like to close today by reading a quote from J.C. Ryle, who wrote the book that we give out on holiness. And he was talking about weak Christianity, weak Christianity. He said this, and I quote, There is a common complaint in these latter days that there's a lack of power in modern Christianity and that the true church of Christ, the body which he is the head, does not shake the world in the 19th century as it used to do in former years. Shall I tell you in plain words what is the reason? It is the low tone of life which is so sadly prevalent among much, much of professing believers. We need more men and women who walk with God and before God like Enoch and Abraham. Though our numbers at this date far exceed those of our evangelical fathers, I believe we fall far short of them in our standard of Christian practice. And he asked this, where is the self-denial? Where is the redemption of time? Where is the absence of luxury and self-indulgence? Where is the unmistakable separation from earthly things? Where is the manifest air of being always about our master's business? Where is the singleness of I? Where is the simplicity of home life? Where is the high tone of conversation in society? Where is the patience, the humility, and the universal love which marked Christians 70 or 80 years ago? which is now 180 and 170 years ago. Are you a living sacrifice? If you got off the altar, you need to get back on. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time today. We thank you for the reminder from your word. And Lord, we are all guilty of falling so woefully short of what this standard here is in Romans 1, Romans 12, 1. I pray, God, that you would help us all today to see what your word says and to understand it. 
and not to walk away here today with just an academic understanding of it, but that your Holy Spirit would do a great work of conviction and transformation in our hearts and minds, that we would see the areas that we lack total devotion to Christ, that we would see the temptation that comes rampant at our bodies and commit our bodies to Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would produce, even in this church, a great army of believers that are totally committed to you, unreservedly, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable and well-pleasing to you. And we'll pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.